hoping we will be uh, looking at verses 5 through 15 in the first chapter of 2 Peter. 5 through 15 of the second uh, letter from Peter to the churches. Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. May God add a blessing to his word. Please be seated. A lot of scriptures this morning. And there's a lot of depth to those scriptures this morning that we're going to be covering. And my title for my message, if you probably see me emphasize the word, is diligence, to be diligent in your faith. Let me ask you, let me start the sermon off by asking you a question. What do you think is the greatest threat to the church and our faith today? Think about that for a minute. What's the biggest threat to the church and our faith today? Some would say government overreach, right? And I'm sure there's some of that. Others might say doctrinal differences that continuously separate and divide the churches. There's probably some truth to that as well. Still others might say the educational system that we have, which is diluting the importance of faith. And I would agree with that as well. We see that on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights are no longer a protected night. They schedule all types of events. They even schedule events on Sunday, such as tournaments, soccer tournaments, hockey tournaments, things of that nature. Others might still say relativism, right? Which is the belief that there is no absolute truth, highlights individualism, and has a philosophy of each to his own. And each person is right in their own eyes. And I would have to agree that that is a great concern in the church today. So all of these have some truth and are certainly a threat in and of themselves. But I believe the greatest threat to the church, the greatest threat to our faith, is the same one that made the churches in Europe museums. The enemy that has closed more churches in the U.S., in the last 10 years 
In fact, in 2019, 4,500 churches closed. Only 3,000 were started. And they're declining every year. And it's because of this enemy, I think. It's this enemy that has allowed us to lose our influence in the communities in which we live. Loss of impact in our schools. An enemy that has weakened the believer in their faith, resulting in moral failures. How many times do you see in the news yet another man, another woman of great faith failing? That's the enemy. Well, what is that enemy? Well, the enemy I'm talking about this morning is apathy. It's apathy. You've heard me say this before. Apathy is defined as a lack of interest or concern. Theologically speaking, apathy is a dulled faith. It's lukewarm. One without vitality, one without life, one without focus. Last week, Peter revealed what God has done for us as it relates to living in this life for Christ and that we've been given everything that we need to do that. We lack nothing. He's given us all. Now, within this week's text, Peter now admonishes the churches that he's writing to that there is a responsibility on their part, a responsibility on our part, as it relates to ensuring that our faith remains vibrant, effective, and focused. So let's begin to understand exactly what Peter is now admonishing to the churches by looking at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Acknowledging all that God has done and provided for us, in which we lack nothing in order to live this life in Christ, Peter now calls us upon our responsibilities. And these responsibilities are just not part of a deal or an agreement with God where He does this for you and then all I ask for you to do is this for me. If we do that, if we have that mindset that because God did this, we are obligated to do this, we're going to find ourselves in a legalistic trap. What God is really saying to us through Peter is I have given you everything you need to live this life in Christ, but you have a responsibility in your faith to keep it vital, to keep it alive, to keep it effective. It just doesn't happen. Now, it must be pointed out that Peter is saying to make every effort. I like how the King James reads here. It says, give all diligence. It shows the importance of what Peter is about to admonish in these seven qualities that we need to add to our faith. It means that we're not to be slack in our faith. We are never to treat our faith as one and done. 
giving our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then nothing thereafter. Doing that either shows there was no sincerity in placing your faith in Christ in the first place, or that you're quenching the very life of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's no in-between. What would it be if there was? Our faith is always to be progressing. It's always to be maturing. It's never to stop. It's never to, and this is a dangerous one, plateau. Where you reach a level of understanding and the knowledge of God, and now you just kind of coast them. We should never not be reaching forward. We should never not be running this race to win it in our faith. You know, when I ran my marathon a few years ago, I placed myself where I thought I would finish, right? They said, if you think you can run your half marathon or marathon in this time, in this time, in this time, in this time, put yourself there so that you're not a, a barrier or a burden to those that are running behind you. I didn't think I was that good. And so I didn't know how I would finish. I never ran that far in my life. So I just kind of tucked myself into this segment of the crowd, which is near the back, which was a big mistake. Because as soon as the marathon started, I was weaving and wandering through a whole bunch of people that were pushing baby carriages, walking with their friends, talking. They didn't even make it a quarter of a mile, and they stopped. Now, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, people sign up for that, and they love that, and they can go out there and enjoy themselves. I'm not dispersing that at all. But we should never treat our faith that way. We should never just sign up for Christ to get a t-shirt, to get a medal that we can put on a a, a, a bookcase and say, yeah, I was in that marathon. Did you run the whole thing? Uh, no, I only walked a quarter of a mile. That's not how we're to treat our faith. And it is with diligence that we are able to add the following qualities and virtues to our faith. Let's go through them very quickly. There's seven of them. The first one is knowledge, or excuse me, virtue. Now, virtue means moral excellence in thought, feeling, and action. No matter what you think, no matter what you do, no matter how you feel, it's morally pure. We were talking in Sunday school this morning how the eye is the eye gate to the things that distract you from the things of God. How often do our eyes focus on the things that are immoral, that are not pure? How many Christians go to a rated R movie knowing there's an explicit sex scene and go, yeah, I could just filter that out. Can you? The Bible says the eye is the gate. You don't think that triggers something in you? Then there's knowledge. Now, knowledge here is different than what I talked about last week. Knowledge, what I talked about last week, was pursuing a relationship to know the person of Jesus Christ. Here, it is, it is from the Greek word gnosis, which is a practical intelligence, wisdom, insight. It means knowing what to do in every situation as guided by the Word of God. That is why we need to write God's word on our heart. Because if we write it on our hearts, that's how we're going to act. It guides what you do. The third one is self-control. Kind of self-explanatory. Some versions say temperance. And it means to master one's body with all of its lusts. Nothing of your flesh should master you. You should master it. Steadfastness. Again, some versions might have patience here, and it means to be steadfast in your faith is to be 
not moved off your mark. I really like that. And being persevering in a time of trial and temptations. Meaning we never give up. No matter what we're facing, we never give up. We continue to trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even when it's bleak. Then there's godliness. We talked about this last week. Again, Peter uses the term to describe the standard by which we are to live this life in Christ, which is in continuous reverence and awe of God. To be so conscious of Him in every aspect of our lives, there's never a time you're not thinking about God. The sixth is brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is to have an affection towards one another, a love for one another. It reflects the love of Christ in the church. This grace is so important in the church because at the heart of it, all the other graces run through it. If you don't have love for one another in the body of Christ, there'll be no unity. There'll be no vitality. There'll be no community. Not to mention the cracked door for the enemy to come in and divide. That's why we are also given love. Godly love. Agape love. It is a love that is given regardless of feelings, whether a person feels like loving or not. I love that. I love that. I don't know if I can love that person because I don't like them. Because God has loved you, you are able to love. Remember what I said, this type of love is not of the natural person, not of the natural man. It is a love of God that God gives you. So you are able to love others that you don't think you can. Just the way God loves you. It means loving a person utterly unworthy of being loved. Sound familiar? So these are the seven qualities and virtues that we are to be diligent about adding to our faith. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you knew there were seven things that you were to add to your faith before you even started hearing this sermon? Now when we look at these seven qualities Peter is addressing, how we think, how we feel, how we live, how we interact with others. That's what these seven qualities and virtues are. Deal with every aspect of your life and your interactions with others and how we're to do it. And the reason why we're to add these qualities to our life is found in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that word knowledge means relationship, to know Him. Have you ever felt distant from Christ? You ever felt like you're just kind of out there on your own? You ever felt like God might have abandoned you? That feeling is not from God. That feeling is because we're not being diligent in our faith by adding those qualities that Peter is talking about. And the reason why we're supposed to add these qualities and virtues to our faith is just not to be a good Christian, as if that's the mark, or a faithful member of the assembly, 
or to feel good about our faith in general. The true aim of diligence in adding these qualities and virtues is to be effective and fruitful in knowing Christ. Completely, intimately, personally. Our life is to bring glory to God in every aspect. And we achieve this primarily by becoming more like His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the pinnacle of glorifying God to become more like Him. Listen to these scriptures, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, unveiled unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You're being transformed in your faith into the image and likeness of Christ. If we are diligent in our faith. How about Romans 8.29? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. I think this is something that is missed by many professing Christians. And it's a major difference between religion and relationship. In that we are called not only to faith in Christ, but to be transformed to Him. To become like Him. You see, we get the first part. But we failed to grasp the second part. I went to church all those years growing up. I never heard someone tell me that the purpose of my faith is to become like Christ. I was told to follow the sacraments, to go to church, to be a good Christian. I think there are many in the world today who are professing Christians who don't realize that the ultimate glory to God that we are to give is to be transformed into the image and likeness of His Son. We stop at religion. We stop at going to church. We stop at going and participating in the various activities of the church. We don't go beyond that. We just kind of stay right there. Your calling is to be like Him, not just to be religious, Not just to be a better version of you. Not to be a dynamic Christian with all the gifts. Not to be a pious Christian who observes all the religious practices and observances. Not to be a famous evangelist. Not to be the go-to guy or the go-to gal in church. Not to be the best preacher. Not to be the best teacher. Not to be the best you can be in the world in which you perfect your craft, whatever job that you do. That is not what we're called to be. We are encouraged to strive to be the best that you can be in order to glorify God, but we are called to be in the image and likeness of Christ. This is our purpose. This is our meaning for being a believer in Christ. Our mission is to preach the gospel, the Great Commission. Our purpose is to become like Him. And we do this by surrendering ourselves, counting ourselves as crucified, fully submitting our lives to Him, and be diligent in adding to our faith all of those qualities that we just discussed. Having said that, let me say this. Church can only help so much. This church. The church is the body of Christ, and we offer up prayer and teaching and preaching and discipleship ministries and fellowship. 
They're all rich. They're all good. And we'll always do that. But hear me when I say this. If church is the main source for growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and you're doing nothing else but to come here for one hour for a 40 to 45 minute sermon, you're failing yourself. You're failing yourself. One hour a week or maybe three hours a week if you attend Sunday school and prayer service is insufficient for diligently growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and becoming like Him. I'm sorry, but it's true. True growth comes from sitting at the Master's feet in prayer and study under the instruction of the Holy Spirit and having a desire to do it. Your daily devotionals, your daily interaction with God's Word, your daily prayer to the Father. And we get so busy, we put it off. Kind of, I'll get to it. Or we go through it quickly where it has no impact. Or we look at it as an accomplishment. I read five Psalms and one proverb today. But what did it say? Uh, something about, mm, we're missing the mark. And so if we fail to add these qualities and virtues and growing in the knowledge of Him, verse 9 shows us the consequences of that. Verse 9, it reads, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's amazing how that, that theme kind of ran through Sunday school and through the invocation that our brother Ron gave and now is in the sermon. So we must pay attention. It is my belief that this verse reveals the real issue behind an apathetic faith in the church today, and that is nearsightedness. Now being nearsighted, as Peter says here, really means is to focus on what is near, and really what it means is to focus only on yourself and the things of this world. It is to be so focused on earthly things and pursuits and pleasures and possessions, enjoying life now, in the moment, giving little attention, little vision to the things that God is calling us to. We can't see. That's why Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. How easily are we distracted from the things of this world? We talked about that in Sunday school. I said, here's an experiment for you because it happened to me. I was preparing for the sermon. I was getting ready for all of this. I don't even have this in my notes, but we shared it this morning. I took a mental break. I'm going to take a mental break from my studies and just kind of, I'm going to click on Fox News. In less than a minute, I was fearful for our country, fearful for my investments, and fearful for what was going on in our country. Totally took my focus from God's Word, His purpose, my calling, straight into the world, and all of a sudden, anxieties, fear, doubts, all that surfaced that quick. That's how quick we can lose our focus on what God has called us to do. And I think God showed me that. Your eyes the eye gate. What you see is what you feast upon. It's what you're going to respond to. Be careful what you watch and what you look at. Now, also, Peter says, is, right? Is blind. 
not will be blind. He says is blind, which means current. He is blind. She is blind. Meaning they are blinded because they place no value upon seeing the graces of God and have lost sight of the promises of God. How quick the world douses the flame of God's promises and implements doubt in your mind. Just right there when I, called, when I looked at Fox News. Man, that stock market is just, really, Tim? That's how quick you forgot God's promises? Your faith is not about the stock market. Because your inheritance far exceeds anything you'll ever get on this earth. And you're here but for a moment. And we are what? Called upon and admonished upon to count the number of our days. Because the days are evil and our calling is great. To minister to this evil world that we used to be a part of. In other words, one who lacks these qualities and virtues in an increasing measure, which is sanctifying growth, are blinded by the desires of this world in lieu of God the Father's desires to them to add to their faith in order to be effective. Again, what we see determines how we act, how we, how we live, what's important to us. Now, this blindness is not due to an accident, right? It's not due to a defect or an inability. But hear this, a willful closing of one's eyes. A willful closing of one's eyes. And it's very easy for it to happen. And because we're so focused on ourselves in this world, we forget all that God has done for us. Have you ever done that? We forget. All throughout the Bible, we see this scenario replayed over and over and over again where people cried out to God, God delivered them, and they went right back to what they were doing, and they cried out to God and God delivered them, and they went right back to what they were doing. It happened with the Israelites. It happened in the book of Judges. It happened to Demas, a companion of Paul. Remember the moment you came to Christ? Remember the feeling you had of being fully loved and fully forgiven and all you wanted to do was serve Him and you had a passion and a desire to just take the world for Christ. But after a while, years later, you find yourself struggling in your faith. One of the reasons this could be happening is because you blinded yourself. You may have plateaued. You find yourself comfortable in where you believe right now. Not progressing, not reaching forward, not running the race. You become nearsighted. You took your focus off God and placed it on something else. And as a result, you've forgotten what God has done for you and is doing for you. He never said, do it on your own. He said, I'm going to do it through you. But here's a warning, and it's out of Revelations. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. This is to the church of Laodicea. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. What? That you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and slave to anoint and, and saliva to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a warning of an apathetic faith. Now, did you catch verse 18 in relationship to what we're talking he said that we are to receive his riches, but we chase after the world's. We do not clothe ourselves in his righteousness, but in our own. And we are be blinded because we do not share in the saliva, which brings forth spiritual sight. We choose the things of the world, not the things that God has provided. And it's a stark warning. So how do we escape an apathetic faith? Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, those seven qualities that we talked about, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We overcome an apathetic faith by being diligent in our faith. Remember what diligence means. It means to exert oneself. It just doesn't happen. It takes effort. It takes discipline. We need to exert oneself continually, not just in times of crisis, not just during times of temptations and trials, and not just in times of persecution, but continually. The true test of a Christian character is in the moments where there is no crisis, there is no trial, there is no tribulation. Are you still as fervent in your prayers and your calling out to God as you were in crisis? I pray we are. I pray we are. In fact, in Paul's first letter in Timothy, Paul encourages young Timothy, and it's one of my favorite segments of Scripture because it's part of my personal calling. And it's out of chapter 4 in 1 Timothy where we read in verses 13 through 16 where it says, wrong side of the page, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear. Now, I realize the context of this verse is Paul writing to young Timothy. But it's also for us as well, as it relates to the basic tenets of what Peter is talking to us this morning. Now, when you read what Paul wrote to Timothy, does that sound passive or progressive? Sounds progressive to me. Can you hear the intensity by which Paul writes? You know why? Because sometimes Timothy lost his focus. That's why Paul's writing what he's writing. But he's also writing that to us too. 
to be diligent, to give yourself fully to them, to the study, to the gifts that you've got, that God has given you. Give yourself fully to them. Because by doing so, you'll not only save yourself, but others. You want to be effective in your faith? Be diligent in your faith. Now, when you read those verses, replace Timothy with your name. How does that scripture read to your heart? Remember what Romans 12, 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That's ongoing. That's every day. That's just not on Sunday. That's just not on special days. That's just not on special events. That's every day. Now, also, did you catch what verse 10 has in it? Verse 10, it has a promise in there. That if you practice these qualities, you will never, what? Fall. You'll never fall. You know, in life, we'll unfortunately stumble in our faith. It's, it, unfortunately, it's going to happen. Happen to me. Happens to me. Some people have failed marriages that didn't focus on Christ. Failed employments because they didn't work under their earthly masters as they are to work under their Lord. Failed friendships because they failed to forgive or to be loving. Impure relationships because we're unevenly yoked and the desires of the flesh override the desires of the spirit. Yielding to temptation because we're focused on our sensual desires and not on moral excellence. Yielding to materialism and now finding ourselves in debt that we're unable to pay. Weak in faith because we spend more time in the world than in the presence of Christ. And the list goes on as to the adverse effects of not having a vital faith. It's because we failed to keep the graces of faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about trials or tribulations that God allows to come into your life for the purpose of refinement. These are self-inflicted faith wounds because we're failing in the basic tenets of our faith. We fall because we do not see the obstacle before us as we walk in this life because our vision's not crisp by the knowledge of God. But if we stay on the path of righteousness by continually progressing in our faith and adding all those virtues that Peter talks about, we will not stumble. It's preventable. All of them. And this is why we must be diligent in our faith. Give full attention to it, progressing in it, always maturing. Finally, Peter writes in this segment of Scripture in the text that we're studying this morning. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of the qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir up to you a way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I'll make every effort, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Ron said something in Sunday school this morning. Ministry of remembrance. The ministry of remembrance. You know why we need to read the Word of God? To remember. You know why we study the Word of God? To remember. To remember the promises, to remember the admonishments, to remember the commandments, to remember 
our obligations, our duties, our commitments. Remember what Christ has done for us in every way, shape, or form. And to remember what God has provided us to where we lack nothing. You see, Paul understood the human condition and the dichotomy of man as it relates to spirit and flesh. Although he is writing to these same churches as he did in the first letter, he recognizes their faith in verse 12 and applauds them for it. So why is he talking to them then about it? If their faith is so strong, why is he saying this to them? Because it's the ministry of remembrance. You see, routine at times in life can cause us to be apathetic, falling into a rut, to take it easy. To have a false sense of security as it relates to the strength of our faith. It can even lead us to being self-deceived until that trial comes. And make no mistake about it, God brings trials and tribulations at times to discipline us, to refocus us to Him. Or to purify us, such as Job in our invocation. All of that was to purify Job's understanding of who God really is. Now, to stir up means to arouse. It means to excite. Because the routine of life can cause us to be apathetic. You know, when I was in the Air Force, every time I made rank, they would send me to some kind of leadership school, right? And within these schools, it focused on being a good NCO and to be an effective leader. And whenever I would return from these schools, I'd be so excited about what I've learned and so infused with energy and, and leadership, I wanted to come back and just lead with all of the tools that they gave me in these schools, and I was so excited to do that. And I did it for a period of time. But over time, routine took over. And the, and the energy that I had slowly waned. It's the same in the church. We go to conferences. We go to district conferences. We go to seminars. We go to teachings, right? We go to a three-day thing that just gets us excited, gets us prepared, wants us to attack the world and, and just save it for Jesus. And I love those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. We need to do more of those things because what does it do? It stirs us up to where when we go back to the church, we stir up other people. And when people come back from these district conferences, seminars, teachings, whatever, we need to allow them to stir us up. To experience what they experienced. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. That's continuous in the body of Christ. Hebrews 13 or 3.13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin to stir us up, to keep us viable, to keep us invigorated. And this is why coming to church is so critical. This is why going to Sunday school is so important. This is why attending a Wednesday night Bible study and prayer is so beneficial. And the fellowship that we share in potlucks is so important. Stirs us up. Gets us excited. Last Friday, give me an example of this, and we're quickly closing here. Last Friday, I had the privilege of taking my brother Elroy uh, on a journey. We went on an adventure. Um, 
Months ago, Elroy gave me a copy of his testimony that he put to pen. And in it showed all the different elements that he experienced as a young kid walking from his house three-quarters of a mile to the school. Direct route as a crow flies. He talked about the trees, this big pine tree. It was 50 feet tall, and he talked about the birds that he would see flying over, and he equated all of them to Scripture as it related to his testimony. Marvelously written, powerful. And so we were out there in the middle of this field with this Charlet bull that we didn't know at the time was crippled, but we thought, Elroy's a little concerned. Do you think we can make it to that fence? I said, Elroy, if that bull charges, you lay flat on the ground, and I'll just run, and the way I run, he'll naturally come after me because he'll know I can get that guy. <laughs> but we're out in this field, and there was one thing that Elroy wanted to find, one thing that was very important to him. He had been there 10 years prior, and he found it. But when we're out there, we've seen that the farmer had dug up a lot of that land, this small little pasture for water holes, and a lot of the rocks were disturbed. And I could tell that Elroy was getting a little concerned that what he was looking for is not going to be found. You see, what we were looking for was this rock that was set on the side of this mound that jutted out, and it was flat, almost like a pulpit. And as we're walking around, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, we're not going to find this rock. And I said, well, let's orientate ourselves, and we did, and we started looking on the hillside, and finally I looked down and I said, is that it? And Elroy, with all the excitement you could think, he says, that's it, that's it. And he immediately stood on it. He immediately stood on it. You know what verse he quotes in his testimony for that rock? Psalms 42, 40 verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. I was so stirred up. I shared it with my wife. I shared it with Jen and Todd in the boat. I shared it with other, I shared it with Mike and, and Calvin in our elder meeting. That stirred me up that our God, a sovereign God, took him three quarters of a mile every day from his house to his school. And when he became saved, he took him back and showed him every step of the way in which he brought him to salvation. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Stirring each other up. Sensing when somebody's faith is faltering. Get in there. Stir them up. Remind them of the seven graces that the Lord and Peter has given us this morning. Because if we do those things, we won't fall. We won't be ineffective. We'll have a faith that is vital, living, active, and effective. Meaning, God will work through you to reach other people. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time today, in a world in which we live, where we cannot afford to have an apathetic faith. Churches are closing left and right. People's faith is waning because of the influences of the world. Refocus your life on the qualities that Peter speaks about this morning. Dedicate yourself fully to them because by doing so, you will not be ineffective, but you will be effective and you will have a faith that is alive and vital.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father God, that it speaks truth to our hearts. Sometimes a hard truth, Lord. Praise the Lord. Because sometimes we need hard truth, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless and anoint this sermon, that it would sit in our hearts and we would meditate upon what you have challenged us with today. And I pray that we would continuously stir up within ourselves and within others this faith, this precious faith that you have given us. Let us never take that for granted, Lord. And I ask you to bless this message in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.